Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. We hope you enjoyed your long Labor Day weekend. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, we will be touching upon a few topics. From a recent district court ruling out of Texas saying that the ACA preventive care mandate violates religious freedoms, to our continued interactions with CMS regarding the new Medicare marketing rule, to a new request for information from the agency. So, joining me to review all of this, as usual, is Marcy Buckner herself. Let's start with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that was just issued on Wednesday. This case deals with the ACA preventive care mandate. We discussed this case in detail back on the July 29th edition of the Healthcare Happy Hour when arguments were being heard by the federal judge Reed O'Connor. But for the sake of context, can you briefly summarize the case and what the plaintiffs are arguing here? Sure, Dan. So there are a few challenges here from the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs make up a number of different entities from employers to individuals who feel that their religious freedoms have been violated because of the ACA requirements that require certain preventive care treatments to be covered by health insurance. So the plaintiffs feel that because they're required under the ACA to have health insurance coverage, that being required to buy this coverage that includes coverage for things like the drug PrEP, which is an HIV prevention drug, as well as things like contraceptives and others, that these violate their religious freedoms because these types of preventive treatments would allow for activities that go against their religion. They feel as though it promotes promiscuity and homosexuality, which are not tenets of their moral beliefs under their religious claims. It also goes a little bit further and claims that the entities that put together the list that needs to be included for coverage for the preventive care do not have the authority to basically put together something that has the weight of law. And there are three different groups that the ACA set up in order to look at what needed to be included in the preventive treatments. One of these groups was already in existence um, prior to the ACA. Others were put into place after the ACA to be able to look exactly at this issue. And it's the groups that look specifically for this are the Preventive Services Task Force, or PSTF. We're going to use a lot of acronyms here that we don't normally use, so stay with me. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that's ACIP, A-C-I-P, and HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. So the plaintiffs are saying because these entities are not specifically 
appointed by the president or voted upon by Congress that they violate what is called the appointment clause and are not entities that can suggest what goes into being a final law that citizens of the United States have to follow. So those are the major tenets of this challenge. So how did the judge rule this week? So the judge ruled that, well, one big piece is that Judge O'Connor, who has ruled against the ACA in the past, did rule that the plaintiffs have standing. This, our loyal listeners know, has been a sticking point on previous ACA cases, specifically in the Supreme Court. But when you're looking at standing, if one plaintiff has standing, it's determined that all plaintiffs have standing if there's a, a group of entities that, that bring together the plaintiffs. And in this case, they did not say that the individuals had standing. Rather, they found the employers had standing. And because of that, the individuals that had also filed along with this claim also have standing. And the employers, because they are providing funds towards the coverage of health insurance that they believe violates their religious freedoms, the court found that they are impacted. They have suffered a harm financially for paying for coverage for these preventive treatments. Uh, the defendants or the government came back and said that the employers don't really have proof that any of their employees that are on these employer-sponsored plans have even taken these drugs. So they can't prove that these fu- their funds have gone directly towards purchasing these preventive treatments and in the plaintiff's argument, promoting a lifestyle that they feel violates their religious freedoms. But Judge O'Connor responded to that and said that even if there's an interpretation that there isn't a financial harm that the defendants are claiming, that there is a moral harm to them because of the Religious Freedoms Act. So that claim is moving forward, that it has violated the religious freedoms. And then when we look at the other argument, which will have a larger impact on the way that rules and regulations are interpreted in their enforcement ability further down the line. So this, even though looking at the violation of religious freedoms seems to be something that is very personal and can be very political, this other piece is very important because there are a lot of different sub-agencies and entities that provide feedback and provide guidance or resources to the agencies that provide rulemaking. And so when we look at this and the way that a decision on the emphasis of those groups have, that's where we could have seen this really have and and could potentially see this have a much larger impact on how administrative law works. I know that's super nerdy. I know that's really down in the weeds and not as kind of mainstream as as some of the other claims we're looking at, but I'm going to break it down for you. So of those three groups that I mentioned earlier, and some, like I said, were put together by Congress specifically for the ACA to, to look at preventive treatments that should be covered. Others were already in existence. The court here looks at how these groups are put together. With the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, and with HRSA, the Health Resources Services Administration, both of those have the people who sit on these task forces or or councils 
They are called, I'm not calling them names, but they are called, quote, inferior officers. And the reason why they're called inferior officers is because they are not appointed by the president, nor are they appointed or approved by Congress. So when we think of all of those people who are appointed by the president and confirmed by Congress, they are who is seen under the administrative law practice as as being able to move forward with putting together rules and regulations that can have the weight of law. These inferior officers are not able to do that unless they have oversight by someone who is appointed by the president or confirmed by Congress. And so when the court looks at this, when they look at the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices in the Health Resources and Services Administration, both of those groups have oversight by the Secretary of HHS. So they say that those two groups that were providing suggestions on what should be included in preventive care, they don't violate what is the appointment clause. So their impact on this is valid. So that claim is taken out. And once again, it's because they are providing recommendations to HHS. There is agency and specifically cabinet oversight by the HHS of those two groups. The Preventive Services Task Force, however, and they go back and forth with this one, and they look at the amount of time served for the people who make up the Preventive Services Task Force, the way that the wording in the ACA says that they can't have any political ties, the ability for the HHS secretary to either accept or exclude what the Preventive Services Task Force is providing them when it comes to what should be included And they found that because of the way that this is made up, and it is made up of these, quote, inferior officers that do not have any ties to an appointed or congressionally approved officer, that this does violate the appointments clause. And so it's one of the three groups that provides suggestions on what should be included in preventive care treatments under the ACA. So this is now going to move forward in adjudication. And the plaintiffs and defendants are meeting on Friday, September 9th, to determine what will go forward and what the actions will be. Because the claims that are moving forward, like I said, are are this claim that this one group, the Preventive Services Task Force, violates the appointments clause. So they don't have the authority as inferior officers to promulgate rulemaking even though this rulemaking did go through HHS, but that's, I think, getting maybe a little too into the weeds. And you can go back to to the discussion on our previous podcast about how that works. I'm just trying to break down what the court ruling was. And then there's also the claim that's moving forward that this violates the plaintiff's religious freedoms. So we're going to see what happens next in the case. On Friday, we could see, and I think some of the decisions that they're they're making here is because Judge O'Connor said that this violates the ACA. The decision is going to be, will they stay the ACA and or will they say that the ACA won't be enforced while this is going through adjudication? I think we all by now have experienced this enough with challenges to the ACA, and I don't think that they will ever end. But I think we have all experienced enough challenges to the ACA that we know that the court is going to stay the law. So that means the ACA will continue to be implemented and could go into place. 
while this continues on through the court system. I don't think it'll be a surprise that the administration is expected to appeal. So then we'll go to the next level court and then possibly on to the Supreme Court, depending on how much further this is is pressed in adjudication. And so the other piece here, like I said, where this could touch on other rulemaking is that suggestions for what should be included in preventive care of the ACA. This is not the only instance of, quote, inferior officers providing resources or feedback or suggestions to government agencies on what should be included in rules and regulations. And this is across the board, not just those regulations that impact us at NEHU, but basically every industry. So if the Preventive Services Task Force is found to be in violation of the Appointments Clause, there are going to be a lot of other regulations that are going to have to be delved into that could be found unconstitutional because of the different entities involved in putting together the regulations. So this is really one to watch closely. Like I said, this could impact other rules that we are very interested in, but could also have a very far-reaching implication on other industries, as well as the way that administrative law even works. So I will be dusting off my old administrative law book, and, and it might be vintage and a collector's item if this changes the way that our administrative law works in this country. Now, let's talk a bit about Medicare. We conversed about NAHU's response to CMS's request for information on Medicare Advantage last week, where you discussed the details of our asks from the administration regarding the new marketing final rule. This final rule, as I'm sure all of our members are aware of by now, unduly lumps licensed Medicare agents and brokers with other third-party marketing organizations, including certain call centers that sometimes act in bad faith. As we mentioned during last week's toast, we sent an operation shout for all members to tell their legislators just how harmful this final rule can be if implemented on October 1st, as written. So Marcy, as of the time we're recording this, how many responses have we had from that operation shout? So far, through the Operation Shout, we have sent over 16,200 messages to Congress. This is by far one of our most successful Operation Shouts, and we have reached almost every office on the Hill with this. And those messages make up about 4,250 NEHU members that have sent this out, as well as over 300 clients that our members have contacted and asked to send the operation shout out and to inform members of Congress that has how it impacts them as a beneficiary. In addition to this operation shout and several letters we have already sent to CMS, we are sending another this week. Is that correct? That's correct, Dan. As we are inching towards October 1st with no action from CMS, we are requesting specific guidance and we're also suggesting some FAQs that they can put together, very similarly to how we had the Department of Labor put together FAQs for the group broker compensation transparency. We're asking very, like I said, similarly for CMS to do just that for the Medicare marketing rule and looking at some of the requirements, asking questions about HIPAA compliance, asking questions about when the recording needs to take place. Does it need to be all of the 
sometimes smaller phone calls that are made between a beneficiary and an agent while they're just answering simple questions? Or is it the conversation that ultimately results in enrollment in a plan? So we have a number of questions. Also looking at technology for how this is supposed to work. Is it okay to have everything batched together and saved by beneficiary name? Or does it need to be by date? Does it need to be something that can be looked up to be able to pinpoint a specific date and time? These are all things that impact the type of technology that agents and brokers could be using to be in compliance with this if it's not delayed. So those are just some examples of some of the pieces that we're reaching out on and asking for clarification about. And this is also because we've heard from you all and we know that carriers are providing suggestions to you all, but you're oftentimes getting different messages from different carriers. And so we're letting CMS know that not all carriers are interpreting this the same way. And so there are a lot of mixed messages that are coming out here even down to whether a Zoom needs to be recorded and if it's considered telephonic or electronic or in-person if you're face-to-face. So really getting down into the details, we want to make sure as much as possible, of course, that you all are in compliance with this rule, regardless of our feelings about the implementation of it. If it is a final rule and it is not delayed, ultimately we do need to be in compliance and we need to have the resources to be able to do that. And so that's what we're asking for. Once we do get clarification on these points, we'll be putting out some communications and webinars to be able to help you all be in compliance with the guidance that we've received. Moving on from Medicare, CMS released a new request for information this week on quote-unquote promoting efficiency, reducing burden, and advancing equity within CMS programs. To avoid confusion, this is a new RFI that is different from the RFI that we discussed on last week's edition of the Healthcare Happy Hour. So, Marcy, what exactly do you think the agency is looking for here? And will NHU be submitting a response to this RFI? Yes. So this is different than the Medicare Advantage RFI that we discussed last week. This RFI is looking for comments on what, with COVID-19 actions, the government took that people feel were beneficial to the markets, what needs to go away, what should stay, what should maybe just change a little bit. And we are anticipating commenting on this. Things that we will point out will be things that were very helpful during the pandemic. Things like telehealth and the increase in use for telehealth, being able to use HSA funds for telehealth if you have a high deductible health plan, the suspension of the observation status rule for Medicare. All of these pieces that we feel were very beneficial in a number of different markets, right? Because that goes across individual employer and Medicare. All of these are going to be pieces that we include to let the administration know that even though we learned from a very unfortunate experience during the pandemic, we did learn from it. And these are some examples of things that will improve across the markets if they're put into place permanently. Speaking of the public health emergency, the Biden administration also released a proposed rule last week focused on what is being referred to as the Medicaid, quote-unquote, unwinding. So can you speak a little bit more about what that proposed rule seeks to do? 
The unwinding refers to folks who went on to Medicaid during the pandemic and may no longer qualify for Medicaid because of a change in employment or other changes in their lives. But because of the special rules under the pandemic, if you went on to Medicaid during the pandemic, you couldn't go off of Medicaid. So the unwinding is what's going to happen when the public emergency ends. And many of these people, because they have different qualifications, will either qualify now for going on to employer-sponsored coverage, or what's more likely is that they'll qualify to go into the individual market with a subsidy. So also asking for some, not solutions, but suggestions on ways that this could happen more seamlessly, because there is expected to be a few bumps in the road as this transition happens. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So, Marcy, what are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to Congress. They are back in session after their August recess. That means we're closing in on the final countdown towards the end of this congressional session, the elections, and possible lame duck session. With this, we, of course, are looking at different items. We can hopefully get into a larger end-of-year package, like the Common Sense Reporting Bill, which you all were meeting with your members of Congress about during their August recess. So now that they're back, it's time for them to take action. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.